Hi, I'm Lynn Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast episode, I'll be interviewing Henning Schwentner. Based in Hamburg, Henning is a software developer, consultant, and coach at Workplace Solutions, or WPS, a business software company in Germany. You can follow him on Twitter at hschwentner, and check out his profile on the company website at wps.de slash henning schwentner. Along with his colleague Stefan Hofer, which I'm sure I mispronounced again, <laughs> we were talking about it before, uh, Henning is the co-author of the LeanPub book, Domain Storytelling, a Collaborative Modeling Method. In the book, Henning and Stefan set out the process of how storytelling can be used as part of the domain-driven design method for software development and product planning and design, generally. In this interview, we're going to talk about Henning's background and career, professional interests, domain-driven design and domain storytelling, uh, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Henning, for taking time out of a what I'm sure is a beautiful evening in Hamburg to be on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for what I call their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in, in software. <clears throat> uh, I grew up um, here in Hamburg, where I'm now um, uh, talking in this interview. And um, my first computer back in the 90s was an Amiga 500. And um, that's where I started to get interest in first, of course, gaming and then later programming. And then I started with programming languages like C and C++ at that time. And then um, the first experience I had really uh, development experience with was uh, Java. When, when Java came out with um, version 1.0, I think in 1995 or so. So I've used that language and other languages ever since. And so, yeah, later it, it my profession. <clears throat> I've heard lots of stories actually from people over the years on the podcast about um, how they got their first computer. Was yours was yours a gift from your parents, or did you start using one of your parents' computers? Um, no, it, it actually it was a gift from my father. I think for my twelfth birthday or something like that. And I, I wanted to have that specific uh, computer, that um, Amiga, because um a friend of mine from school he already ha had a, a machine like that and i know i, I knew it was a it was a, gr a great gaming machine and then I, I knew this is what i wanted i wanted to have i was going to ask a lot of people uh, you know of course their first encounter with with computers is, is with games uh how did you start programming yeah with i would say with the typical hell world um kind of stuff and it was like i started to have a computer because i wanted to play games but then I saw all these opportunities that you have with a machine uh, like that and um, <clears throat> that you could um, make the machine do what you wanted it to do and um, this typical feeling of, of power that you have when you write your first programs and um, I think in a way that's probably the, the typical nerd way to, to start programming and um, <clears throat> when you're a teenager and uh, spend time with a with a machine or with, with a computer and did you study programming in university or computer science yeah that's right that's right um I, I i studied computer science or in german we say informatic or informatics it's yeah um and did you did you i mean most most people listening to this are probably you know familiar more familiar with the north american uh education system yeah. so did you do a, a four-year degree where you had to specialize in something and take electives in other courses or did you just study computer science and engineering uh, I, I studied computer science in the in the old german system where you got a so-called diploma um, which is um now in europe we we 
um, change the systems or and, and make their systems more similar. And so then I think now they can be compared to the um, the English or the American system. So now we too have these bachelor and master system. But in the old days, it was like um, you uh, like you were doing a master's, but um, without a bachelor first. So you, you couldn't stop before that. So I, I had a, a five years um um, study in, in uh, computer science. And uh, this is a question that comes up all the time on this podcast, but if you, yeah. were, so it's 2019 now, if you were starting out with the intention of having a career in software development, yeah. would you study at university and take, take, take the four or five years to do that? Or would you choose another route? Um, <clears throat> I, I would do it again. <laughs> I, I, I would um, study computer science again. Um, I mean, the times have changed. So now we have this different system. Now you, um, a, a bachelor's studies in computer science now typically takes three years or three and a half years. And that's what I would recommend. That's what I'm recommending younger colleagues today do that and then see um, if you work in the industry and maybe you go back to university or what we're doing in our company. And I, I know other companies are doing it as well is that a lot of our colleagues start as working students. So they do, I don't know, one and a half or two years, um, they study at university and probably they, before that they got in touch with programming and then um, they start in our company working in, in real projects and then seeing what does all this theory from university mean in, in practice uh, when you go to the real life. And typically for me that goes well hand in hand. Yeah, it's interesting. In, in I don't know so much about the United States, but in Canada and computer science departments, I believe it's quite typical for people to have um, co-op programs, as they're called here, yeah. where, you know, in the summer, instead of getting a, a sort of random job out in the world, yeah. you actually get a job in yeah. your industry. Um, yeah. And that can be really helpful for sharpening people's minds on yeah, yeah. whether they really want to do what they, they're they doing yeah. <laughs> uh, and, exactly. and, and knowing what they really need to learn when they're in those years. Um, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Especially um, if you ask me, I, I think one one thing you don't learn at university is that it's so important to not only to work with computers, but to work with other people. So that's software development is is, is a very cooperative work today because you don't write programs alone and you don't write programs for yourself. You write it for other people and you for other people and you do it um, with your colleagues. So it's very important to develop some sort of soft skill, which you usually don't learn at university. I was going to say, I, I've got quite a few questions to you for, for you about cooperation uh, going yeah, forward a yeah. little bit, because I know this is an important part of what of what you do uh, and your and your view of, of business practices generally. Um, but uh, before we, we talk about that, I wanted to ask you a little bit. So you've been working, I, I checked out your profile on LinkedIn when I was preparing for this interview, and I saw that you've been working for WPS for 14 years. Um, yeah, so yeah. That's, one, that's a long time to work for one company. And, and I yeah, was wondering if you, if you could talk a little bit about what WPS does generally and what you're doing there now, and maybe one or two of the biggest changes you've seen, because again, for, 14 years is a long time. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Okay. So what are we doing? Um, WPS, our, our workplace solutions, we, um, we're a consulting company. So we're helping other people or other organizations develop software. Plus, we are developing software um, as a service for, for other companies. 
So that's uh, those are two things. And the, the third thing is that we are, I'm giving a lot of trainings in, in especially in DDD and domain driven design, because many companies today have these um, big old software systems, legacy systems, um, big ball of mud style, monolith style, and they then they go to the internet or they go to a conference and they see, uh, when I have a monolith, what I need is microservices. And then they um, go on and when they are lucky, they see, okay, um, the main point is not the technology. It's not that I need a distributed system. What I actually need is a, is a, is a well-cut system so that I um, take this big monolith and put, get, get, uh, give structure to this thing. And um, the basis for this is, a, um, is typically uh, found in the domain. We look into the domain and see what are the subdomains of it. So what's the, organizations of, uh, the organization of the domain? And then take this uh, organization and use it for the, um, for the software, for the software modules. And yeah, that's what we uh, as a company do. We, we consult in, in these kind of systems, enterprise systems typically. And yeah, that's, this is what I actually do, is, is especially training and, and um, consulting. Although um, my, my, my real profession is being a programmer, is being a coder. So, but of course, as you know, um, you make more money doing consulting and training than, than coding. And uh, what would you say is one of the biggest changes that you've seen? I mean, would it, you know, something, it could be something as high level as the introduction of Agile um, yeah. or something technological. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the introduction of Agile, of course, that was very important. Um, but I have to say I was lucky. Um, and when, um, when I started um, at the university, um, I, so I, st I started my studies in 1999, so in the last millennium. And, um, and then in the first semesters, we, we were um, just learning how to program. And then uh, when it got on and to see how, how is it working when, you, when you're working a team and not working alone, then already the, the professor that we had there um, uh, um, read about Agile and... Um, Saw that actually that agile is um, a, is a good thing and that that's what what we need. So um, my education, although it's now twenty years or, or older, already started with um, a, a very agile mind. And, um, I, I'm still happy about that because I still see today a lot of waterfall style projects um, and still many teams haven't done the Agile shift and have maybe heard about Agile, but, but never came there. So yes, I think Agile is one of the, um, the, the biggest uh, changes. Um, another change maybe um, that's, that's happening again and again is that people see um, that, yes, technology is important, but the more important stuff is um, is what's what's happening in the domain. So the, the software is not an end in itself. So, but we are, we are programming the software for somebody else, for the user. And if we um, if we're doing our job good, 
then our user has an easier life or a better life afterwards. And if he or, or she doesn't, then yeah, well, it's, it's nice that we spend a lot of time programming, but um, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So this, this advent of, of the idea of domain-driven design, and that's now coming again because of the microservices stuff, I think that's, that's another big change. And then, of course, when you, we talk about technology, um, this whole topic cloud is, of course, a, a game changer again. Yeah, thanks very much for that great answer. Um, uh, just, just, just setting the stage a little bit for people who might not be so familiar with some of these terms um, to paint the cartoon picture of, of yeah. things. Um, in the olden days, um, basically, company executives didn't understand or want to understand. I'm putting it very crudely here, or understand anything about software. Software, software yeah. was like bricklaying in their minds, and so what they wanted was you. They had a system that people call waterfall, where you can just put it crudely to say. You set out exactly all the steps that people needed to do, and then you just set the programmers on their computers to go type out all those steps, basically. And uh, over time, because of because of changes in technology, uh, partly uh, that enabled new practices, but partly because uh, people sort of started to see the limitations of that approach, inherent inherent limitations of that approach, people started doing things a little bit differently. It was actually very difficult and a fight um, to get this. Nowadays, I think a lot of people who come across the non-technical people who come across the term agile hear it in all kinds of crazy ways that yeah. seem a bit kind of um, iffy. But actually, it was a very pragmatic thing, and it had to be fought for. Uh, and it's it's very much transformed the way software is developed in many organizations. And yeah. many organizations had existing code bases that needed to be needed to be changed. But it's not just the code bases that needed to be changed. It was the practice of developing the code that needed to be changed and the understanding that the executives had. And from this, in part, came the concept of domain-driven design, where yeah. um, what there needed to be... People started to understand that the this sort of it wasn't it was the executives and the programmers, but also the people in the middle and the you know the people who um, were delivering the service and the people who were using the service all needed to be talked to and all needed to be able to talk to each other in order to under, in order to develop software properly. And I, I watched a video preparing for this uh, interview where you and and your colleague Stefan talked about the example of an application that you developed for a I don't know whether the port of Hamburg. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I was wondering if you could use, if you could just explain a little bit about better than, than I just have, you know, what domain driven design is and yeah. how you used it to develop this really cool application for the, and for a very important part of German industry. Yeah. Yeah. That project actually was fun. Um, and I'm, I'm still happy um, because it's, it's an example where you can easily describe what's, what's happening. So, um, it's it's a pity that we are not that, that we only have the audio stream now because there you can easily see what's happening. So um, why is it called domain driven design? Um, it's called design because we want to design the software. So that means we want to design the the software architecture on the one hand, but also the the user interface in a way. And it's domain driven because we say or the manager of design says, Eric Evans, the, the father of, of DDD says, we want to look at the domain and see what's happening there and see which actors are there and what are the, the objects they are acting with and all this stuff we take into the software and not only into the, the software interface, the user interface, but also into the software architecture. So that means in, in this port example, um, 
that we build a software for maneuver planning. So that, that we plan how ships can come in and out or sail in and out to the, the port of Hamburg. And before they actually do that in, in real life, we, we simulate it in the, in, the, in the software. So, and what are concepts from the real life? Of course, the ship is there and then we have the maneuver and uh, <clears throat> we are using special maps, the so-called depth maps, where we can see how, how deep the, the, the sea and the river uh, are. And all these things that are, we're using to, to make our work, or the, the, the nautical officers um, that, that do their work, um, all this is put into the software. So we say we have this depth map as an important work object, then let's have a class in the software, in the code, for a depth map. What are we doing with the depth map? Let's have a method for that. And so we that's that's the idea of domain-driven design. We take the stuff from the from the domain from the real life and put it in the, in the software. So that means we we don't get lost when we look into the software, when we look into our model, our domain model. Yeah, just a, that's a really great, it's such a great example. As you see, I'll, I'll definitely link to the, the video on YouTube where you and Stefan do, yeah. do the talk yeah. and show everything because it is, it is really yeah. fascinating. Right. And just to paint the picture a little bit, so the port of Hamburg is a sort of inland port, so it's connected exactly. to the ocean yeah. by a river. Um, that's, and, yeah. and you need to navigate ocean-going ships down the river into this exactly. city port. And so what the uh, port workers have to help do the, these ships navigate is basically the ship's captain will make a call saying give me a give me a path um and then you have to give him a path and one of the really important things is that you need to make sure he doesn't scrape the bottom or he or she doesn't scrape the bottom of the riverbed when they're exactly. navigating into the port and so they have these maps that have little numbers all over the place showing the depth of the water in particular places and what the navigation people would do is actually have a cutout a paper cutout with the silhouette of the hull of the ship and then they would actually move that they would put it on the map and they would pay, they would literally put that piece of paper on the paper map and they would move it along and they would chart out a path that way. Uh, and then they would actually write down the path on paper and send that to somebody to give it to the to somehow communicate yes. that to the ship's captain. Um, and, and so you guys were brought on board to try and uh, come up with a software application <laughs> that could actually help, help improve this process by by digitizing it, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a, still um, five years ago. It was a, a a classical paper process. So they had, as you said, they had these um, paper depth map and these paper uh, so-called ship silhouette um, silhouettes. Those are these these things that uh, to have the same uh, form as the hull of the of the ship. And um, what we also want um, with the DDD is that we want to keep the language, that we want to take the domain language and put it into the software. So that's called ubiquitous language in DDD because we want to use the same words everywhere. That's why it's called ubiqu ubiquitous. So we want to use the word ship silhouette not only in real life but also in the code. So the class should have this name. And I, I, I thought about it earlier when you said um, the the captain of the ship wants to have a path um, that, that's a good example because the the right nautical word would be he wants to have a route and um, DDD is very picky about that because um, we want the developers or uh, we want to 
ask developers to understand the real language from the domain, not use our words, but use the words from the domain. And that's very hard to do. <laughs> that's one thing why we, we are writing this book about domain storytelling, because that's a way to find out the, the domain. This is actually this is this is a very interesting uh, issue that gets to the heart. I, I from what I understand, of domain-driven design and the sort of revolution that it represents. So I'm not a technical person myself. Um, the sort of resident non-technical person at Limpa, but of course I you know interview programmers and work with programming yeah. book authors all the time. And one thing I've come to understand is that naming is famously a very hard thing to do in programming. So you have to give names to the logical objects that you construct in your code. And one of the things that domain-driven design is built to do is actually have a naming process that can allow things to be communicated across that divide I was explaining between, because when you, you talk about like, you know, d designing something for the user, the user in this case is, um, well, the user in, in one case, I mean, you have an example from your book, I believe, of designing a system for booking movie ticket, movie cinema yeah, tickets. Yeah. So the user there isn't just the, as, as, you know, a normal application developer might think, oh, the user is the person trying to use the app to get the ticket booking. The user is also the, the employee of the company who's trying to help that happen. Um, and so if you can have a language where your program, where you can, the, the people who are using it can actually communicate with the programmers and the programmers can communicate back in the same terms. It yeah. really, it, the, the theory is that that will really help you design better pro and maintain products in a far superior fashion than you could in the past. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's what we want to do. We want to to understand the language of our users, of our domain experts, and bring that into the software. And yeah, you're right, it's, there's a, a famous um, hard thing um, with naming. So there's this famous uh, quotation um, of, um, I, I, I have to look that up. <laughs> I have a slide actually with his name on it. Um, and the quotation, the quote is, uh, there's two hard things in computer science, cache invalidation and naming things. So and DDD doesn't help with cache validation, but with naming things. The idea is just use the names that are already there in the domain. And so, so that's why. We, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. And, and and what we're doing with this language is building a model. So when we when we code, we build a model of the real world, and that's why it's called a domain model because. Um, it's a model of the domain, of, of parts of the domain, parts of the real world that we um, transform into the software. And, so and not the interesting thing is we, we don't um, take everything from the real world. We only take the things that are interesting in the context we are, we are working in. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. That's great. It's. It's. And it's. It's really interesting. So, like, for example, in the in the example of the port of Hamburg, the the domain might be the enterprise of running this port, getting the ships in and out yeah. safely. Yeah. And within it, there are things called bounded contexts. Yeah. Uh, if I have that understanding correctly. And so, what you do, and and we'll we'll get to the details of how the domain storytelling is done in in a second. But essentially, what you do is you you define you have a model for this domain. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and then you kind of try to isolate the various contexts within it. So there's kind of these domains within the domains, uh, as well. So the guys who run or the, the people who run the ships that do the sounding every day to make sure they know yeah. how deep the port is in various places are yeah. one domain, the people who are communicating with the ship's captains to give them mm. their roots are another domain. And maybe even right. the, the, the communication back and forth can even be conceived of as a different domain. 
yeah, yeah, that's actually, that's right. We we would call it to be exactly. We would call these kinds of domains so uh, subdomains to show okay th these are parts of the big domain um, maneuver simulation or are running a port. And what we want to do with these subdomains is we want to find um, different modules in our software. When you build software systems um, today, we typically build big software systems. And big means it's hard to understand and hard to change because you have to understand everything. And that's why DD says, and, and that's, that's really a, a great thing, says, hey, let's not build just one model, just one domain model, but let's build several domain models. Smaller models that are easier to understand, easier to maintain, that are less error prone, because they are can easy be easier be understand, and let's separate these models with clear boundaries, and that's what these bond, bounded contexts are are about. One bounded context is one software model that, or, or one module, one software module that contains one domain model, and the domain driven part about that is uh, to say, hey, let's look into the domain, see which subdomains we can find, and then. Let's make one module, one so-called bounded context, for every subdomain. So we don't have one big piece of software where everything is connected to everything, but we have several pieces of software that are connected to each other by very small and, and very clearly defined interfaces. And crucially, if I understand it correctly, the idea is that the way these modules work and the interactions between them are modeled on the way the actual yeah. activity yeah. is being undertaken by people in sort of doing their jobs and using the services in real life. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. yeah so that's why we want to we want to know very in, in a very detailed way what um, the domain experts, what our users are actually doing in their life. And that, yeah, that brings us to domain storytelling, um, uh, I think. Uh, so I'm wondering, just moving on, and that's you know the subject of your book, Domain Storytelling, a Collaborative Modeling Method. So I was wondering if you could, just moving on to the next part of the interview, if you could talk a little bit about um, what domain storytelling is and a little bit about the history of the idea. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Maybe I start with a subtitle. It's called a, a Collaborative uh, Modeling Method. Um, why is that? That's because... Um, in the last couple of years, um, different people saw that it's, it, it's a good idea to not model these, to not build these domain models alone, but to build them collaboratively. And collaboration here means we want to have the domain experts on the one hand and the developers on the other hand. So we want to have direct communication between the people that are using the software and the people that are building the software. And we want the people that are building the software, the, the programmers, the developers, to understand what's actually happening in the domain and build this domain model together. That's why it's called collaborative modeling. And there um, are um, a couple of methods like domain storytelling um, for collaborative modeling. And these are these came up in different parts of the world uh, independently. Um, domain storytelling came up um, in the University of Hamburg um, in the in the late 90s, 
and uh, the early 2000s and had yeah, a, 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 um, was developed at a German university. It had a very scientific, very German name. Um, it used to be EGPM, EGPM, that's short for Exemplarische Geschäftsprozessmodellierung. So that's no joke. And this is this is actually not one word. Those are two words. But yeah, if you don't understand the language, that may, might sound very strange to you. And literally, that would mean in um, in, in English, uh, business process modeling by example, or something like that. EGPM, Exemplarische Geschäftsprozessmodellierung, and. Yeah, with this name, uh, it, it couldn't gain much success out of the university, but I got in touch with it. Other colleagues got in touch with it when we were studying at the University of Hamburg. And also, um, Stefan, when he did his PhD thesis, he, he got in touch with this method. He, he studied um, in, in, in Austria at another university, but he came to Hamburg for, the, for his PhD thesis. And... Um, a couple of years later, when we finished our, our studies um, and used the method for for different um, for different uh, projects, Stefan said, "Hey, these ideas are good, but nobody except us knows them. Um, let's give them a more uh, easier name or a, a better international understandable name and a less academic name, and let's make this this method more more international." That's why he came up with his name, Domain Storytelling. And then we um, showed it on, on several conferences to the uh, DDD community, the Domain Driven Design community, and um, it, it fit um, it, it fit well. And so now today there are um, other people from other countries as well. And on one conference where we presented it, where we did this video afterwards, when we were on the, on the airplane back, we said, okay, <laughs> this was a great conference, we had a lot of fun. We need a book about that because people, uh, it, it's not enough just to uh, hear it in talks. They need to do to read about it. And that's why when we decided to, to start this book, the main storytelling, um, a collaborative modeling method, and then we saw um, what's the right thing to publish it. And yeah, as we're both um, uh, agile developers um, by heart, then we thought this um, publish early, publish often that this does fit well with our uh, way of working. Yeah, so that's why yeah, so. no, I've got I've got some questions definitely to ask you about that in the next part of the interview. But um, uh, and I'd like to ask you a little bit more about uh, domain storytelling. But before that, I cannot resist the temptation to do a bit of a digression on German compound words. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I know a little bit of German, uh, and but I, I, I uh, come come through it uh, largely through uh, encounters with philosophy. Uh, and when you understand the, the, the way the German, the, the power of the comp, the way compound words work in German, it's just fantastic. So, you know, terms like Naturwissenschaften and Geisteswissenschaften and from Heidegger, like Zuhandenheit and Vorhandenheit and things like that. And, but they're wonderful words. Like, I think one of them is Backpfeffengeschicht. <laughs> sorry, what? Like punchable <laughs> face. Gesicht, Gesicht, sorry, Backpfeffengesicht. Yeah, punchable face. Or Zitzpinkler. <laughs> which is someone who sits down to pee uh sorry but it's it's actually like it's brilliant and funny and 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 a, actually a very powerful linguistic thing that we more or less lack in 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 the english language uh and yeah. i just if you want to look it up look it up german has many wonderful words from the mundane to the profane uh that are that yeah. are just 
fun to learn. Um, yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> and so, um, uh, with that yeah. temptation. Sorry. Yeah, um, it's good. Yeah, it's good that you followed this temptation because you mentioned Heidegger, and that's when we talk about the the history of of domain storytelling. Then then we also have to talk about Heidegger because. Um, Exemplarisch Geschäftsprozessmodellierung, this this scientific form of, of domain storytelling, it um, was developed in an uh, in, in a bigger frame. So there are a, a couple of, of uh, computer scientists working on something that's similar to to DDD, but also German. It also has a very German name. It's called Werkzeug und Materialansatz. That means tools and materials approach. So there's, there's also, also an English book um, about that. And this Werkzeug, this, this word Zeug, Werkzeug is also stuff, a compound word. Stuff, right, yeah. And Zeug is stuff, stuff, and yeah. Zeug is also a very important word for, for Heidegger in, in Sein and on Zeit. Um, I don't know the English people, it's probably being and time. It's being, it's um, being and time, he, yeah. Yeah, um, there, there he um, goes deep into the stuff, into the Zeug. So, and, and um, Heinz Tullikhofen, the, the um, guy who invented the, the tools and materials approach, he also had a, a big, um, or Heidegger had a big impact on him and, and these ideas for that. So, that's that's yeah. fascinating. <laughs> I did not I did not know that. The um, one 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 thing I should mention is that one of the reasons I, I know some of these terms is from reading Being and Time, which okay. in, which even in translation into English, people kind of have to use a lot of Heidegger's words in German. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So you, won't, you, won't, you, you don't you don't always translate ready to handness or present to handness. You mm -hmm. might just mm -hmm. use you know two hand in height and four hand in height. Uh, mm -hmm. And and it, even if you even if you don't speak German, you come to know the German terms because it's just handier to know them yeah. than to use yeah. some some weird English you know uh, approximation. And that's that's actually I mean that's actually why I brought up German compound words is because yeah. like they 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 capture ideas in a way yeah. using language in a precise way of using language that actually no other use of language can really do yeah and that's exactly what this ubiquitous language is about that we earlier talked about this idea of having the exact words from the domain maybe these words are used in a wrong way or in a misunderstood way but um, we don't care about that because we want to use the words in exactly the same meaning our domain experts are using them. And all these fine differences that get lost when you translate, we don't want to lose them. That's why we don't translate the words when we go into the software. Yeah, I didn't okay. know we'd be getting into hermeneutics, but uh, I'm, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, hap I'm happy to do it. Uh, um, and so... Uh, one of the origins, uh, I believe, of domain storytelling was with cooperation pictures. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could talk. And and but they didn't they didn't sort of turn into what it, it didn't begin the way it, it it turned into something else. But in the beginning, there were these cooperation pictures that were then translated into text. Uh, yeah. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those cooperation pictures and what they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These cooperation pictures that were in in these times in in the late nineties that we we talked earlier about um, when. Um, scientists from the University of Hamburg, computer scientists from the University of Hamburg said, okay, let's try out our ideas um, in the real world. And then they they came into, um, I think it was, a, um, an, it was a hospital where they first tried it out. And the idea of these cooperation pictures was, okay, we want to make visual 
um, the the interaction between different actors in the in the hospital or later in, in other domains. So they put it into um, into a picture. And what they also did was they made interviews and wrote down what they heard in these interviews. So they, they asked the people, what are you actually doing? And then they wrote it down. So to gain this, this understanding, this knowledge of the domain. And then they um, got this idea of, okay, these cooperation pictures, that's a good idea because it's easier to see these pictures than to read all this text. And then the next invention was that they saw um, this, this was done by, by other person, uh, uh, by, by other persons. They saw, okay, what we need in this picture is actually the time, because we don't just want to show the cooperation. We also want to show what's happening afterward. And that's when they got these sequence numbers into the cooperation pictures. And uh, these cooperation pictures today, we now call them a domain story, a picture which shows the cooperation and also the time, also what's happening. Um, which um, who does what with what? So the who is the actor, the what is the activity as we call it, and the what is the work object. So the actor does something with a work object. Yeah, and so to spell this out, so um, uh, the way domain stories are, are created is initially is in is in workshops, and so the inspiration yeah. came from these cooperation pictures. But what happens is a bunch of people you you gather a bunch of people together, um, mm -hmm. like the person who has to make the route through the port. And yeah. you know the person who has to make the map, um, and 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 uh, other other sort of people in the area. And then what you do is you develop. You have these three general. I, I think if I understand the process correctly, there are three sort of categories you might call them. So one is the 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 actors or the subjects. Um, yeah. So this would be the people people doing things. But it, I imagine it could probably be automated processes as well. Yeah. And exactly. Then, and then there's work objects, which could be. You know, uh, a piece of paper, literally, or or it could be a, a, a word document, or something like that. And you need to, and and then you have uh, activities. So the 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 subjects are represented with a certain icon, like a little silhouette of a person, or something like that. And then the work object might be a little rectangle or something like that. Um, and then and then and then you have an activity, which is denoted by an arrow uh, yeah. and a little text textual description of what the activity is. And then really crucially, I think you mentioned this, but you add little numbers in circles uh, mm -hmm. and these introduce a temporal development to it, or at least a, a sort of causal sequence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, subject undertakes activity to create work object and then mm -hmm. work object is the, the, there's an activity of transferring that to someone else. And so you're mm -hmm. really, you know, it, it looks like uh, it, it, it takes the form initially either on a smart board or a whiteboard of icons and arrows and words but what you're really we, what, i mean i shouldn't say but what is happening there is that actual real processes in the world are being modeled based on communication that all the people involved in the process undertake yeah. with each other in these workshops yeah exactly and the idea is that's the the collaborative modeling part of it that we um use these domain stories as a as a tool for active listening so we, we let our domain experts, our users, tell their story. So we ask them, what are you actually doing? And then they tell us, and we paint this picture, this cooperation picture, or the, the, this domain story, and show them, this is what I have understood. And then the, um, the domain expert who's telling his or her story can then say, yes, you understood that right, or no, 
you understood this wrong, this has to be done in a different way or um, in a different time. So we can easily um, deal with misunderstandings. So that, that, that's, that's a basic idea that we want to have a, a clear and sharp understanding of what's happening in the domain. And that means we have to communicate in a way that these misunderstandings can be um, thrown out of the way or, or, or moved out of the way. I've got, a, I've got, this is actually kind of a very, almost a selfish question, I should, I should say, but um, uh, one thing I've encountered just, you know, reading about uh, technology in the past is the management of aircraft carriers. Mm-hmm. And in control rooms, or, or whatever they're called for aircraft carriers, I mean, an aircraft carrier is a logistical challenge managing yeah, one yeah. you've got all these planes maybe with folded up wings and you have to mm-hmm. manage how they're going to be raised to the top of the platform yeah. and then when they're going to fly off and when they're going to come back and like you have to know where the everything is like literally yeah, where, where, where other people and all the stuff yeah where the people are getting goods from another ship loading them onto an aircraft carrier that might actually just like be out to sea for six months straight without docking yeah. things like that um and from what i understand historically this was done in a similar manner to what you were described, what you described in the video, which I'll link to, of uh, having you know, this sort of paper silhouette on the little map. And what they would do, and even like really sophisticated air for aircraft carriers, m- ones that might even have their own dedicated satellite and like, you know, a nuclear power plant, you know, yeah. running it, is they would actually have little like toys on a, yeah. on a exactly. flat surface that they would move around. And so someone... In this, in this story, as I understand it, the one I read, which I found somewhere, and hopefully I'll, I can find a reference to it to put in the um, transcription of this interview, uh, someone decided, no, 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 that's that's ridiculous. We've got this big, fancy technological marvel. Why are we still using little toys on a flat physical surface? And someone tried to develop something, and they went and they they went back. You know, in this particular example, the aircraft carrier went back to using the old analog process. So I guess the question I have for you is, in your company, have you ever encountered a situation where someone approached you saying, we've got this old analog process, we want mm-hmm. soft, a, a complete software solution, and have you ever come back to them and said, hey, no, part of it actually needs to stay the way it is? That's a good question. Um, and actually, yes, I think, in uh, to be honest, in, in most processes, um, there are parts that um, will stay out of the machine. So when we look into the cinema example uh, that you mentioned earlier, um, there, of course, um, that the person is seeing, we don't want to have a machine doing that. We want to actually have the, the cinema go or the customer watch this movie. Um, and, of course, we want the real ship to come into the harbor when we um, talk about this. Um uh, this this port example, or when you buy a car, of course you want to buy the you want to get the real keys to the real car, and um, we are, we would model all this stuff in the process, but we don't uh, we wouldn't put it into the the software, and that's also an important thing um, about domain storytelling or other business process modeling tools that we model the whole process and then we see this part here that is that is done in software or that will be done in software and these other parts they will stay out of it and that's good that, that they're not so that we see where is the technological marvel to, gonna happen and where, where not plus also this 
um, it's a very good example that you, you said with the, with the aircraft carrier because I think it's um, pretty similar to this maneuver simulation in the harbor um, because um, we, we replaced the, the paper solution with a big touchscreen um, solution, a so-called touch table it is now, um, but still... Um, it feels like in the old days, we, we now have the toys that you mentioned in the computer, but it still makes sense to have these toys because it's very easy to understand and it's, it's a, a, a mental model that's, um, that, that, that can, be, can be used um, with, a, with a low cognitive load um, when our users, in this case our nautical officers, are doing their maneuver planning. So they, they don't have to spend their their, their um, brain power on uh, thinking uh, how, am I, how, how do I have to use this, this great um, powerful machine um, th this should not get into the way that's why we want to have an, an easy to use user interface that's a really interesting example um, I was interviewing some people who work for the Financial Times recently and they've, they've worked yeah. on the digital transformation there and one of the things they talked about yeah. was how journalists often are working to deadline and they've got yeah. to get things right and so yeah. you've got to be very thoughtful in the way the way and the timing with which you present them with new features, because even though the new feature might be very powerful, if they go into it and they need to get something done and so anything's changed, you know, even if it's an improvement, they have to learn it. Uh, and mm -hmm. so now and then and then not only do they have the cognitive load when that happens, but they have the cognitive load whenever they go to interact with this, their tools that, yeah. oh, no you know, maybe something has changed. So I've got to be prepared to kind yeah. of like, you know, suddenly be like a superhero every time I want to like type some words out and post them to a website. Mm -hmm. And so being judicious in your thoughts about what you the tools that you present people with and keeping in mind the real world thing that they need to accomplish is really mm -hmm. important. And it doesn't necessarily mean more complexity. You know, the simplest solution might often be the best. Uh, which sounds, yeah. sounds yeah. straightforward when you say it, but you know the history of software development is full of people not learning their <laughs> lesson. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and everybody of us uh, knows many examples where uh, they have used a, a software that has a, an awkward interface and does uh, as a, a strange mental model and makes it hard for for the user to to understand what's happening. Actually, yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. This this. This has come up a couple of times on this podcast, but you know, I, I mentioned that I'm not a technical person. But when I started learning, when I started working with LeanPub. I had to get to get to know, you know, how to work with with programmers and things like that. And one thing I often found frustrating was with some of our employees. They might sort of have the expectation that if I can't explain the use case for something in terms mm -hmm. they appreciate, they resist the logic behind it. You know, like, well, I would never do it that way. And it's like, I don't give a sh I don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I don't mean, I don't mean, it's not about, and it's, it's not just me being mean to you. It's me being mean to myself. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about this objective situation that we've determined here where we need to deliver a system. But, you know, and, and I guess what I'm saying is that like a lot of people think of programming as being this kind of faceless thing, but there are faces behind all of the software that yeah. you use and people have personalities and, uh, and um, yeah. you know, having these high level theories like domain driven design uh, is very important because as, and then this is one, th one thing I wanted to get to was the concept of cooperation and how important it is in your work. So I believe you mentioned, you or your colleague Stefan mentioned, mentioned in uh, either in the book or, or in the, in your talks um, 
that like a business can be conceived as a bunch of cooperative practices. That's what a yeah. business is. Um, and we need to, we need to keep in mind that we are, we remain ourselves when we do our work, but that there are actually these higher level processes going on as well. And, and having collaborative systems, like say with using the same names to refer to the same things, even though you're yeah. pulling the lever or writing the code for what happens when you pull the lever is very important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, to, and, and I think there are at least two dimensions to cooperation uh, are there. One thing is um, that, um, as you um, said, software is not something that's faceless or that's built by, by um, some, some person um, I don't know. And um, software is not, nothing that um, exists independently of these people. So that's what um, na naively one would think um, software that's that, that's um, shiny steel or chrome standing there that, that may be beautiful and it's, it doesn't have to do anything with, with humans. Um, but the opposite is true. So it's um, the software is totally dependent from who has built it and um, from the from the taste and the skills and um, other um, uh, uh, other things of the of the people that, that build it. We we today we call this socio technical systems. To say a software system is nothing that can exist um, without the human or the, the so, so, so society or the, the team that builds it. So we say it's not a technical system, and, and really it's a socio technical system because. Um, it um, interacts with the, the people that build it. That's one dimension. And of course, the second dimension, it also interacts with the people that use it. And this stuff also has um, implications on the software. So we, we don't want to build the software in, in, uh, somewhere out in, the, in, the, in, the, in space. We want to build the software very tightly, uh, very, very, very close to our users to our domain experts because we want them to um, to understand what's happening and we want to support them in their work. Moving on to the uh, final part yeah. of the interview um, where we talk about your uh, book and, and the process by which you, you, you're writing it. Uh, you mentioned this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how you found out about LeanPub and why you chose us as your platform for self-publishing uh, your book, which I yeah. know you've been working on and planning for quite some time. Yeah. So we... I think we started to work on the book um, when we came back from this conference. Um, that was the, the DDD Europe in Amsterdam last year. That must be in, in February 2018 or so. And um, that's when we you know we wanted to start a book. And then we said, okay, let's build a, a, a small kernel of things and then see where we can publish that. And we, we knew Leapup from... Uh, other books from the community. There are now um, a couple of books, um, finished and unfinished, um, on LeanPub, and we knew that it's that it's a good thing to have uh, the possibility to to publish a book that's not finished because it already helps other people doing their stuff. Um, plus, it helps you as an author because you get the the feedback and all this stuff earlier, and, and can then put it into. Um, into the version so um, it was uh, and it already started we, we 
published the book, I don't know, a week or so ago, and there's already feedback from people telling us this is not working or this is a good idea and this kind of feedback you, you, you want to have. Yeah, I'd like to talk to you about feedback in just a second. Um, but before we do that, um, one thing, uh, so as listeners to this podcast probably know, LeanPub ena enables um, uh, in-progress publishing, so you can publish a book when it's you know incomplete, uh, as Henning was saying very uh, succinctly. Um, that's helpful to readers who need the information uh, now, who might not want to wait for the typical you know full book publishing process to be complete, a, a chapter on something that can help them accomplish their task now is great, even if the full book isn't finished. Uh, but it can also be good for authors because they get to get feedback early and they also get motivation and you know positive or even negative reinforcement when they when they publish. But one thing that involves then is deciding when to publish for the first time. And so I see that your book is marked as about 45% complete. And yeah. I wanted to ask how did you and, and Stefan decide when the book was ready to you know hit the publish button for the first time? Yeah, so we have um uh, two parts in the book and the first part is um more introductory and the second part is um for, for what different settings can you use the the method so we we talked about ddd and domain storytelling is is it fits nice with ddd and for for uh, both ddd in the large that's strategic design but also for ddd in the small that's tactical design so for founding finding context boundaries on the one hand and for finding a domain model on the other hand. But this is only one use for it. You also can use the method for um, finding shadow IT, for um, finding the requirements uh, and other stuff. And we have written uh, some words on the, in the second parts for the, for the different uses you can use it. And um, we also think there are other uses what we haven't thought about yet. And um, our goal was to say, hey, let's bring this first part into um, this, this introduction part into a state where we can, or, or we believe, believe it helps other people to use the method. So that's why we said, okay, now um, th this is not great what we have there, but it's okay that somebody can read it and understand what the idea is. And that's why we said, okay, let's hit the, the publish button. Let's say this is about 45%. And now let's go um, iteratively um, over it and now um, make it better and publish. And now and then when we have the time to write a new chapter, for example, to publish again. And for uh, people listening um, who are curious about the process, have you... Have you planned sort of monthly releases or will be 100% done by yeah. this time? Or are you just kind of, or are you, or are you kind of, you know, going with the flow? Yeah, that, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think actually we would love to give ourselves deadlines or a, or a deadline to, because we all know when you have a deadline to go to, then, then you, you are more productive because it focuses you on, on the work. But um, since we are writing the book more or less in our spare time, uh, to be honest, it doesn't work that way. So it's it's always this, okay, um, somebody um, takes uh, two or three hours on the weekend and, and writes um, a, a, a small part and a few sentences or is coming back from a job in another city and is sitting in the train or in the airplane and then um, writing there. So... And since we're not 
full-time authors, we, we don't have the time to say, okay, um, now let's take four weeks off and just finish this book. So that's, this is not how it's working for us. So I think that's probably another reason why lean publishing is um, working good for us because, um, yeah, I hope that we finish the book within the next month or year uh, or months or, or year. But yeah, when then when when big clients come with with um, big and interesting projects, then <laughs> the, the the book um, will have to to stall a bit. I think. Thank you for sharing that that story. That's so great. <laughs> to, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think I think for a lot of people, um, it seems it seems very daunting, and and to, that's one of the reasons we we like to have this third part of the interview be about the actual process of of writing, so that people yeah. who are interested in hearing about that can hear other people's stories and know that they're not alone, uh, yeah. uh, or or even learn learn like you know that there are there are these models that you can use for doing it that are you know don't necessarily require really strict timetables and, and things like that, um, yeah. and that it's it's a bit of an organic process getting any book done yeah. really. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think now we have about 70 pages or so, and it took us, I don't know, 18 months or so. <laughs> That's a long time for not, not much paper in the end. So, and, <laughs> and you mentioned, and I, I, I fear it would stay that way. So. Yeah, you you mentioned feedback is important, and that's that's an important thing to a lot of lean pub authors. And I noticed that at the beginning of your book, you you have a specific section where you ask people for suggestions to improve the book. Yeah. You share your Twitter handles and an, a specific email address, and you've also got yeah. a Slack channel. So you, you mentioned it a bit, but how has that yeah. been working out? You've been getting a lot of feedback. Um, I um, yes, we did uh, get um, feedback um, mostly on Twitter by now. So also a bit by email, but that was more of from colleagues that we wrote, hey, our book is finally out, um, download it here. And then um, many colleagues and clients, they said, hey, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm going, sorry, I'm, I'm going to download it. And, um, and, and, and I'll come back to you um, when I read it and give you some feedback. And since it's out now for a week, there are um, a, a couple of, um, of readers really came up with um, with uh, good ideas and changes and so on, but I think most of the readers need a bit more time to to really read it because they are in the same situation. They of course don't to, don't have the time to um, take a week off to to read deeply in, in, into a topic like this. The last question I always like to ask in these interviews is: um, if there was one thing we could build for you on Lean Pub, or one thing we could fix for you that's been bothering you, can you think of anything you would ask us to do? Yeah, thank you. That's that's a nice question, but um, I, I think um, at the moment with, with the platform, I'm I'm totally fine. What I actually need is um, some magic, some magical guy that is finishing my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much for sharing that. Unfortunately, we can't. maybe not maybe not a guy, maybe something like a time machine or a machine that stops the time and gives me gives us the time to write it down. That's what we would need. I, I think we would all love that. Unfortunately, that's beyond the resources that we have as a software yeah. company. <laughs> but uh, but we'll keep it in mind. <laughs> um, so thank you very much, Henning, for taking the time to do this interview and for writing the book and for being a Lean Pub author. Yeah. Okay. Len, thanks a lot. It's an it's an honor for me that you are interviewing me. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. 
If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to try being a LeanPub author yourself, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.